people are just terrified about their rights, their right to choose, to bodily autonomy, to having a democracy, to what the future looks like because of climate. And people want to do something, helping them find an effective way to use their limited resources to make an impact is really crucial. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Phil Radford, is a longtime activist and progressive political entrepreneur. Phil is currently building Champion.us, a donor advisor platform for small donors who want to make a systemic impact on democracy, climate change, justice, and choice. Phil has a notable career before this new effort. Among other things, he was CEO of Greenpeace and started and ran the Progressive Power Lab, Membership Drive, and the Progressive Multiplier. If you're interested in entrepreneurship in the progressive political space, you should definitely listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Phil Radford of Champion.us. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Phil, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm Phil Radford. I'm the CEO of Champion.us. I have been doing organizing work and other social change work for years, starting as a student where I was exposed to environmental injustice in the west side of Chicago, fighting against incinerators, and have run Greenpeace, started the Progressive Multiplier Fund, built a software company building Salesforce apps that I recently sold, and am now launching Champion, which is a donor advisor firm for small donors so that they can make the biggest impact on the issues they care about. Well, I have tried to center this podcast around political entrepreneurs, and I'm glad to have you on because you seem to fit in that bullseye. You had mentioned being exposed to environmental injustice in college. Tell me a little bit about the path to that point. I grew up in a town called Oak Park, which is the first town west of Chicago. It's now more aptly called Woke Park by many people that live there. I was raised very religiously. And so on Friday nights, we'd go work at homeless shelters or we did a lot of service. And I always felt like to be good was to actually do good instead of just talking about what it is to not be bad or to be good. And so when I was in high school, actually, I was a member of several local clubs and worked at homeless shelters as a volunteer. And I started to see posters around the neighborhood that said endangered species, except it wasn't an animal. It was a kid my age who lived in the west side of Chicago who was black. And at that time, one in 18 black males in the west side of Chicago would die by the age of 21. And it it was mind-blowing, right, because that was – 10 blocks from my house, but I was white. I was living in a middle-class neighborhood and I was very lucky and privileged and kids just like me, but born a different color and a mile away had a completely different reality. So I started to get involved and around the same time, you know, we all have different life-changing events, but I lost a few friends and then my mother was diagnosed with cancer and When I started to hear about the incinerators in the west side of Chicago that were emitting the most cancer-causing chemicals known to people, dioxin, I just thought, you know, there's something I can do. So another kid 10 blocks away already experiencing so much injustice 
doesn't also hear from his mother, it's cancer. I'd like to do something. So one of my friend's mothers was a great organizer and she recruited us to go to all these hearings and to hold up banners behind community groups while they did their press conferences and protests. And we just did what we could to help. We certainly weren't leading. The community groups were leading those fights, but we just felt like we had to do what we could. And then one day, living my small idyllic life, I came home from soccer practice and Julie Samuels, who is my friend's mother, called and said, hey, Phil, we won. I was still thinking about the soccer game. I said, what do you mean? And <laughs> she said, you know, we collectively have stopped the building of new incinerators in the west side of Chicago. I got the bug. I, I knew that I was not the person that did that. I knew that at best we played a very small supportive role. But I also learned that when we organize and work together and people come together, we can make an impact. So that basically steered what I did with the rest of my life. What happened to your mother? She survived. Thank goodness. Thanks for asking. That's a relief. Yeah. What was college for you and what did you study? I went to Washington University in St. Louis. I started to study environmental science and then I realized I didn't really need to know the chemical equation for the world is going off a cliff. I really needed skills. So I shifted to studying business and political science and focused a lot more on building skills so that I could make an impact. What sort of skills do you think you acquired that were valuable? It turns out that studying business is not that difficult. It's one of the easier subjects in undergrad, just management, marketing. It's, it's pretty simple conceptually. But what I focused on quite a bit was just how to manage and build organizations, strategy, how to be effective in social change. And then I also focused a lot on activism when I was in college. And when you came out, was the perg world what you did first or was there something before that? Yeah, I actually started knocking on doors for PERG while I was a high schooler and every summer in college because they will promote anyone who's good as fast as they can. I would run their door-to-door -door offices in the summer while I was a college student. I did one summer with CoPERG, Colorado PERG. Nice. So I know that world a little bit, yes. I actually think you learn skills in the world of canvassing too. Absolutely. And, and learn a lot about people. Mm-hmm. What did you learn? I think number one is if you can make someone laugh, you can get them to engage. <laughs> you know, there are very simple human things that we have to remember. It's not all technique. It's not all fear mongering. It's human connection that really matters. But also I learned how to manage 40 people as a 19 year old. I learned how to manage staff working on incredibly hard issues, whether it was working against hate crimes in the middle of Indiana or Kalamazoo, Michigan, or Western Michigan, where people would throw things, yell at us, swear at us, call the police on us for just talking about gay rights. So there are a bunch of different things that I learned, but I think it was a great experience because they trained you how to manage. They gave you all the room that you needed to grow if you could grow into it. You learned how to message and communicate well, and you learned how to run campaigns. What was next for you? So after that, I actually went into a training program called Green Corps. Green Corps is a, a program, it's a 13-month leadership development program to train people in the nuts and bolts of organizing. So, you know, anyone from Natalie Foster to a lot of the senior leadership at Move On to a whole range of leaders like Ben Jealous, who's taking over the Sierra Club, a whole range of people went through that program. Uh, is that still going? It is, yeah. What kind of things do you learn if you spend a year at at Green Corps. You learn how as a Chicago person to organize farmers in Idaho, <laughs> which is, you know, it takes a lot of work to figure out how to enter a new community, talk to people, really listen and figure out how to move them to work. Basically, we were organizing them against the Farm Bureau and its horrific stances on trade and environmental issues. We learned how to do electoral organizing we learned how to do press conferences. We spent a lot of time focused on developing leaders. So basically anywhere from the tactics of campaign work to the strategy of working with different communities to the nuts and bolts of developing leaders and managing people. 
I don't think your average high school or college student knows that there's a profession in all that, but there is. Yeah, you're right. There is. I think you have to really seek it out. I think one theme I've heard on a lot of your podcasts is that people start with what their passion is, what their values are, and then they find the path that they can take to get the most skills as quickly as possible. And I think Green Corps or other programs like that are, are great for that. I do think one of the challenges is that you have larger organizations that hire a lot of people can afford to invest in developing those people, right? But most nonprofits are relatively small. People are hired for specializations. And because of that, there's no comprehensive training program for new people coming in. And so that's why you have unions or the PERGs or other groups that actually can invest in large swaths of new organizers or staff. And those are great places to start your career. But starting in other places, if you have a good mentor, that's great. But you're probably learning something really specific and not general skills you can apply later. At this phase of your career, were you confident that you were on the right path? What were you thinking as the world was opening up a little bit to you? Does that question make sense? I think that sometimes you go down a path and you're kind of full of doubt along the way, mm -hmm. or you're not sure if you're the right fit for it. Sometimes there's a, a feeling that you've found your niche and you're pretty excited. Where were you? What I found was around that time, what I, I had worked in a set of places that were very structured where I learned a lot of skills, but they were very structured. My time was managed down to the 15 minutes at time. And so what I was really looking for was room for more creativity. And I met the team at Ozone Action, which later merged with Greenpeace. That was an amazing place. I started as their field director and we ran campaigns every three or four months. So we would for four months, run a divestment campaign against Ford, GM, Texaco, Exxon, get schools and churches to pull their money so that they would pull out of massive industry front groups that were fighting on climate change, like the Global Climate Coalition. So we'd organize people, do it in a really intense way. We knocked the Global Climate Coalition out. Then we pivoted quickly to going to all the primaries and caucuses to push clean energy and climate change, which resulted in Senator McCain sponsoring a bill. And so it's basically rapid fire, four month campaigns at a time, a really inspiring leader, John Pasquantando, and a really great small team that we would all move on different projects for short bursts. And we were just constantly changing the game on global warming back in the very early 2000s. Whatever happened to John? So John ran Greenpeace, and now he runs organization that does opposition research on folks that are fighting against climate solutions. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So oh, you said that Ozone Action merged with Greenpeace. Did it do that while you were there? It did. It did. And so how did that affect you? We were a small, nimble team absorbed in a very large institution that was going through a lot of transition. So I ended up moving on. I started an organization called PowerShift that was working to build the grassroots base and drive down clean energy prices to tackle global warming. So is that your first kind of real entrepreneurial venture? It was. It uh, was. That's always a lot of learning. Yes. Uh, tell me about it. We had a set of successes, which were great. So we worked with other allies to get Citigroup to start to offer clean energy financing to people for their homes. The big barriers back then were figuring out how to finance clean energy so that you can spread out the cost enough to make it affordable. And the reason to do that was because, you know, like we're seeing now, every time you double the production of a widget like solar or batteries, it drops in price by about 20%. So it's really just how do we get the cost down to consumers so that the production skyrockets. So we were able to work with allies to get about 13 cities to issue municipal bonds or sign contracts to buy really substantial amounts of solar energy. We were able to get Citigroup to commit to offering new types of financing to consumers for solar on their homes and energy efficiency, which made solar affordable and basically doubled the geography where solar was affordable in the U.S. because you could put it on a mortgage. 
And we also, you know, we patented some great tools that would get us 40 letters to the editor and op-eds printed in newspapers across the country every year. It was good. I, I think the thing I learned was don't spread yourself too thin. We were doing a few too many things to knock any one of them out of the park to the to the level that I would have liked to. Anything else that I should know or people w- would be interested in knowing about PowerShift? I think the thing that drew me from running PowerShift to Greenpeace was that we were doing great policy work, but I really missed being in a good fight. And Greenpeace was very attractive because it was doing great corporate campaigns, very aggressive, and I felt like that's what was required at the time to really tackle some of the big issues. So you went back to Greenpeace? I did. Did they recruit you? Did you knock on their door? How did that work? That's a good question. I believe I was recruited to run their grassroots team, which at that point was about two people, pretty small team. I may have knocked on their door. I remember having a a conversation with John Poscantondo where he was recruiting me, but you know, who, who knows who reached out first. Sometimes it's hard to go back to a place that you were at a little bit. Sometimes it's a good way to jump up higher because they know you. How did it feel to renew your acquaintance there? It felt great. I think when when Ozone Action merged with Greenpeace, there was just a lot of work to do to set people up to succeed on the team. And, and John had had a year or two to do that. And Greenpeace was humming at that point. And so it was great to be able to go into a organization that was really functional at that point. So you had mentioned that you end up running Greenpeace. What was the path internally to do that? I started out running the grassroots team, which was about two people at the time, and launched the digital team doing online offline organizing, launched the canvas because our budget was declining really dramatically and built up the student organizing programs and a lot of the training programs. And over the five years I was doing that, I built my team from two to about 450 people, basically all self-funded. So, you know, about 400 canvassers, a student program that generated its own income by running training programs. We had built a machine that was dramatically accelerating the victories of Greenpeace because we had so many boots on the ground. And by the time John was stepping down, I was probably managing 60% of the organization's budget and 80% of its staff. John said, hey, you should think about applying, which I hadn't thought about at all. I said, well, where are you going? He said, I'm thinking Wall Street. I thought, well, I'm not going there. (laughs) In hindsight, he was clearly lying to me so that I wouldn't follow him. (laughs) But yeah, it was just a lot of hard work to build up the base of the organization to work on all these pressing issues and I was not thinking about being the executive director at all, but threw my hat in the ring once the position was open. Boy, what a great way to come to lead an organization to build a part of it, mostly from scratch and get their respect that way. And it's kind of entrepreneurship or something. I don't know what the right term is, but it has to give you a lot of confidence that you can take on the whole thing if you built something that's 60% of it. Yeah. I mean, I've always looked for roles where I can be an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur. And I actually really like going back and forth between them because it's very nice to be able to take a lot of risks in a big organization with guaranteed payroll. And so doing that at Greenpeace was really nice. The other thing that gave me a lot of confidence taking that role was that the campaign team and the communications team and the operations team, all the different teams that were there had really grown in strength over time. And so I've been very focused on my own work. And when I pause to step back and look at how the whole organization was doing, it made it a lot easier that we had a really deep bench across the board. So had I not had that team, I would not have felt as confident running the whole organization. Did that lab spin out of Greenpeace at some point? Or am I thinking of something else? Are you thinking about the mobilization lab? Yeah. So the the mobilization lab was something that I started at Greenpeace to help get the global organization focused a lot more on how to use digital tools to organize, to fundraise, et cetera, but mostly to organize. And so that was something that I raised the money for. And then we built hiring Michael Silberman, who 
you know, that's was, right. Cause I interviewed him a long yeah. time ago and I was, I was trying to connect who it was that had told me about this. And yeah, yes, Michael everyone. was, Michael's amazing and did a really good job. It was nice. Basically all I had to do is raise the money. I was the board chair and then hire Michael. And then he just ran with it. He did a really good job of infusing more digital work into Greenpeace in 42 countries. So what advice would you give someone else having run an organization of that size and brand about the job and how to do it well? Well, I think one thing is play to your strengths. When I took over, Greenpeace had been winning more and more campaigns, but our biggest victories were corporate. And, you know, I thought, okay, well, Greenpeace can lobby Bernie Sanders all day, but so can everybody else, right? Are we going to lobby the moderate Democrat or Republican? Maybe, maybe not. But what we were great at was influencing corporations. And so the first thing I just did was looked at where we win, what our strengths are, and how we double down on that. So by the end of my tenure, we had one registered lobbyist on staff, and that was it. And we were focusing almost exclusively on global corporate campaigns. So, for example, a lot of it came from the fact that we live in a very corrupt country in the U.S. A lot of that corruption is legal through campaign finance laws. But we were looking around and saying, what is winnable here on our issues and how can we win? And not wanting to just take what was winnable, which was breadcrumbs, or just not worth winning necessarily. We looked at our colleagues around the world, like in Brazil or India, Indonesia, and asked, how are they winning in even more corrupt countries? And what we found was that first, they would work over the companies that were paying the politicians. They would run a campaign targeting the company. They would get some of the companies to say uncle. And then the companies and Greenpeace would push for change at the legislative level. That worked incredibly well in Brazil, worked incredibly well in Indonesia. And so we thought, well, why don't we do that here? So we were able to get Apple, Facebook, Amazon, a whole range of companies to commit to 100% clean energy for the cloud because all these huge data centers were 2% of global energy production increases and consumption increases. And then because of that, Facebook and other companies pushed North Carolina to allow solar into the state. And so we really pivoted to say, what can we do that plays to our strengths that we've seen work before, instead of just tagging along and doing what everyone else does that doesn't play to our strengths? Wasn't there some kind of democracy initiative that you had? There was. And the reason for that, um, I worked with Ben Jealous, who's taking over the Sierra Club now. He was at the NAACP at the time. Mike Brune, who was at the club. Larry Cohen from Communication Workers. John Stocks from National Education Association. And my perspective at Greenpeace was we've become really good at influencing corporations. We moved about 100 corporations during my tenure, which helped pass policy globally or domestically. And that was great, but we were also backed into this corner, right? So Congress had been gerrymandered. We all know the Senate's a problem. The courts were getting worse. We were basically being backed into a corner where the only place we could be effective was in the corporate boardroom. And that was it. And we just weren't happy with that. And so we thought we needed to do something to change the game. And that was clearly betting on also strengthening our democracy. So over about a half a year, had to cajole our board of Greenpeace and Sierra Club and other groups to actually take on voting rights. Campaign finance reform was a little easier for people to quickly understand. And then our brother, Larry Cohen, who ran communication workers, was adamant about filibuster reform just because... McConnell was blocking every court appointment possible in the Obama administration. So we basically teamed up, pulled together a few hundred groups and collectively worked to run campaigns to fight voter suppression, push for campaign finance reform and change the Senate rules. How did that go? Senate rules were changed. Uh, then our friend Mitch McConnell changed them even more for the Supreme Court. The movement on voting rights, I think, has gained a lot of steam. And I think the movement for campaign finance reform and even funding for it is very limited. Where it's done, it's really interesting and innovative local policies, like in Seattle, where you get democracy dollars and you get to contribute those to candidates. And so everyone gets an equal ability to fund candidates locally. What else did you do at Greenpeace that you would want to be remembered for or proud of? I'm proud that Greenpeace is still very active on democracy. I am proud of the impact that we've had on 
saving global forests, on driving down the cost of clean energy and opening up markets for clean energy. I think those have been really powerful. And I was also proud of how well we worked globally. So a lot of our campaign work would be to convince Mattel to stop buying Asia Pulp and Paper, one of the worst companies in Indonesia, to force them to agree on a moratorium of deforestation for paper. And the collaborative global relationship we built with our colleagues in China and Indonesia and Brazil, that was one of the most rewarding parts of working there. Why did you leave? I'm a starter, not a maintainer. I was bored. At four years in, I was bored. And I called my coach and I said, I don't understand. I'm bored and I'm running Greenpeace. This is the least boring place. And she said, I told you a year ago that you would prefer to start things. You're happiest when you're starting and not when you're maintaining and growing things. And I said, oh, I must not have been ready to hear that a year ago when you told me that. (laughs) I'm ready to hear it now. It took a couple months of getting over any sense of self-importance, right? Because we were working on climate change. It's a crucial time. The organization plays an important role. And so I was confusing the importance of the organization in the time with my importance being in the role, right? And so it took me a month or so to get over myself and say, well, that's great, but this isn't where you're happiest or strongest. And you should really hand this off to someone who likes to maintain and grow things and you should start things. I'm familiar with that that set of emotions. I think I'm also better and more interested in starting things and less interested in sort of the hold people accountable to a set of goals phase that maybe follows a lot of the time. So that's interesting. I also am familiar with trying to disentangle yourself and your identity from I am the CEO of a globally known enterprise, not in my case, but in your case, and whatever it happens to be, whatever, I'm surprised it only took you a month or two, and maybe you're understating that, but it's not that easy to like to go out and not have that as your calling card. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what did you do next? So next I took a, I went to Greece <laughs> for a few weeks, which was great. <laughs> I started a few things. So I started Progressive Power Lab where I thought, okay, it's time to be entrepreneurial again. And so we started Membership Drive, which built software for door knocking and other campaign work on the Salesforce App Exchange. We started the Progressive Multiplier Fund, which provides grants, loans, and recoverable grants to progressive groups and technical assistance to help them scale their independent revenue, especially focused on building C4 money. And then most recently started Champion. Tell me about Membership Drive. I actually had not heard of that, um, but I sounds like I ought to have. Tell me about like working in that Salesforce environment. How did that go and did it get a lot of use? Yeah, it did. We um, So Membership Drive, we had a couple different parts of our business. So one was we helped a set of groups launch their own in-house door knocking operations. So Center for Popular Democracy, Working Families Party, Children International. We helped Humane Society stand up a program. Part of it was we were helping a set of groups, especially around fundraising, stand up those programs. And then part of it was the software we built that was soup to nuts, basically how to internally manage a Canvas operation on Salesforce. We ended up getting a lot more sales operations paying for our software, which was interesting and downloading the app than we did political organizations. But, you know, it it worked really well. We had a ton of subscribers, um, a whole range of sales companies, solar companies, people, some of the funniest ones were the people that chase storms that damage cars and use your mapping tool to figure out where it overlays with parking lots and then knock on doors and go to parking lots and, get people to pay them to repair their cars. So a pretty wide use case and a bunch of different user personas picked up on the tool and then we sold it. Any users on the right? How did you deal with that? We did have one user on the right and we couldn't prevent it because you could just download the app on the app exchange. Yeah, that's interesting. To whom did you sell it? Were you happy you sold it? Did they do well by it after you sold it? Because that's always kind of an interesting part of of building something. Yeah, we were approached by 
um, a couple different buyers. Um, we were approached actually by the people that bought Badger Maps, which is also a really big mapping sales shop. We were also approached by a software development company that was going to integrate it into a larger suite of tools that they had. We ended up selling it to the software development company and they seem to be doing well. Honestly, I dove right into Champion since selling it. So I haven't talked to them a lot and said, how's it going? But they seem to be doing well. Progressive multiplier. Say more about that. The idea behind the progressive multiplier fund is that the scale of organizations we have don't match the scale of the problems we're, we're taking on. And often the types of money that we have are not effective, right? So C3 money, we're, we're just constantly fighting with our arms tied behind our backs. And so the concept behind the progressive multiplier fund was to invest with grants and technical support to help groups test out new ways of generating their own revenue. It's all small dollar, but you know some of the groups we help them develop continued learning education courses for attorneys because they were great. There were legal groups working on criminal justice reform that ran great trainings. And we'd help them both develop those training programs, but then also market and sell them so they had a new revenue stream. For others like Push Black, which you know is a phenomenal organization, had 5 million people, I think, at the time on their Facebook Messenger program around Black history. We funded them to run just a ton of little tests. What color should the button be? Where should it be? Because all the things that have been tested everywhere else have not been tested on Messenger. I think we gave them a grant of $25,000 and some support, although they didn't need much. They raised about three hundred sixty, And then we gave them a recoverable grant, which is kind of like a loan, but we took all the risk. If they didn't make any money, then they wouldn't pay it back. And if they did make money, they would. We gave them that and they became financially self-sufficient for their entire Black History program. So then we gave them another to launch their entire program around Black finance. We worked with a whole range of different groups, giving grants and technical support and then recoverable grants or loans to help them scale. And for every dollar that we granted out, groups raised about $4. Where'd the money come from that you were granting out? Mostly just foundations that really cared about the capacity and existence of groups on the ground. So when we started, we had a range of funders. Amalgamated Foundation was very generous, Open Society, Ford Foundation, Solidago Fund, Haas Junior Fund. So there's a range of foundations that were able to step back and not just think about their current campaign priorities and really think about the strength and longevity of the movement that they support. Is Progressive Multiplier ongoing? It is. Who's who's in charge of it now and what what's different about it? You've left it, right? Yep, I did yep. leave it. So Bethany Mackey runs it. Bethany has run a few marketing agencies in the past. She started the digital program for a major fundraising and marketing firm called Merkel. She was the director of an organization called Forward PMX, which was an agency doing strategy work to support nonprofits. So she has a huge amount of experience and is 50 times better at small dollar fundraising than I am. What's changed about it is they're still working on helping all these local groups. They've also launched a consulting firm underneath their C4. So all the profit rolls up into the C4 to help bigger groups with a lot of their digital work. So they're working with people for the American way and a whole range of groups to support their work. And then the income from working with those bigger groups then funnels into the C4 so they can do more C4 grant making to local grassroots groups. How does Mertz Gilmore Foundation fit into all this? Because you were doing it, I guess, in parallel. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a director on the board of directors and um, just had the pleasure of running the search committee and we hired an incredible new executive director and president. That's a great foundation. It's very respectful of the field. We don't really steer the field much. We really listen and we focus on democracy, climate, and the arts, which are three incredible areas to be able to support community groups organizing on these issues. Who do you support in the democracy space? Who don't we? That's a good question. So I will say that it's so well run as a foundation that the board doesn't vote on individual grants. We get dockets and we say yes or no to the docket, but we assume the staff know what they're doing. But I can say that in the past, we've funded a lot of the Georgia groups doing democracy work from a national perspective, groups like Public Citizen that have been great leaders, the Democracy Initiative, 
we've funded in the past. So there's a range of groups doing really incredible work, a lot of voting rights and focused on the South quite a bit. Cool. Well, you definitely at this point know the progressive space pretty well. Do you have any general observations before we start talking about your new thing about what you see working well, what you see not working well in the general progressive ecosystem? I think the progressive ecosystem has come very far in building capacity and infrastructure and a bench as well. Compared to 20 years ago, just the data tools and skills and the technical capacity, a lot of the investments in progressive tech and political tech have really helped the progressive movement gain in sophistication quite a bit. 20 years ago, it wasn't common in most nonprofits to have a data team. <laughs> and maybe they had a data team to track some donors, but really nothing was very data-driven. And so I think there's been a really dramatic evolution in terms of both building infrastructure for the movement and also just expanding the different roles and skill sets and capacity within the different nonprofits. So I think that's good. One of the challenges is there are both too many groups and too few groups. Um, How is that time. possible? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I think, you know, there are too many groups in that um, victories have, you know, everyone claims credit, credit for a victory when there are probably two or three that are really driving the work and making it happen. And for everyone else, the victory is just kind of correlation, not causation. They didn't really drive that change. And then at the same time, there are a lot of barriers to entry for startups to join, which is, do you know a donor or can you make it the 18 months before you finally get that grant from the first meeting that you had with somebody? There are both too many groups and then there are too many barriers to entry for disruptors, I think. And so figuring out how to sort that out so we can be more effective would be really important. What do you think are the characteristics of a strong entrepreneur in the progressive political space? I think it's consumer driven. So, or like member driven or focused really on the experience of the people that you're serving, right? I think that one of the challenges of a nonprofit versus a for-profit is nonprofits are stakeholder organizations and for-profits, they kind of care about stakeholders, but they really care about the relationship with the person buying their product. Whereas with nonprofits, the person buying your product in a way is the big donor and the person you're serving is your member or your constituency. And those two things you know, do not always meet. So strategy in the for-profit world sometimes is much more clear than it is in the nonprofit world. But I think increasingly there are great nonprofit startup leaders that are very focused on iteration, rapid prototyping, testing. You know, the lean startup model has started to sink in and they're very focused on the person they're serving to make sure they develop a product or something that's actually of use to them that they will use. And I think that's crucial. And I think philanthropy needs to be clear on the tension that exists between being member serving and funder serving. And that for us to have successful people-based organizations, they have to defer to being constituency serving and member serving or customer serving. So you made another big transition, it sounds like, to start a new thing, this champion.us what made you leave behind what you had started and put other people, I guess, in charge of some parts of it and go forward with a blank slate this time? Yeah. Well, Progressive Multiplier was similar to Greenpeace, where I started losing energy and realized I should get out and leave this to someone who has the energy to build it and maintain it and grow it before I do any damage. <laughs> if it's not the thing that gets you up in the morning, you need to get out of the way. And Bethany is extraordinary and is doing a really good job. It's growing. They're having a lot of success. She and the team are doing an amazing job. What struck me that was that at Progressive Multiplier Fund, we'd figured out how to take a dollar and turn it into four, right? So we'd figured out the multiplier effect. At Greenpeace, you know, I built the organization, doubled the size of the organization financially before taking over as ED. And so I have some experience with recruiting people recruiting donors, recruiting members. And it seems like most nonprofits are doing it wrong. <laughs> We're not doing it wrong, but we all start as C3s, right? So most nonprofits are 501C3s. And so they can do educational work and some percentage of lobbying and 
if they're good, they can grant all their C3 money to their C4 and that fills up their primary purpose bucket and they can spend it out of their C4 in a compliant way. And then that means their C4 money can be used for non-primary purpose work, right? Like whether it's candidate work or anything like that. And then you want to start a pack and you realize that if you want to operate at a national level at a mass level locally, you're going to start, I don't know how many packs, right? Or our friend Robert Fox, who you had on the podcast, had to go to Philadelphia for a night course in order to do any work in Philadelphia, in addition to already registering in Pennsylvania and doing extra reporting in Philadelphia. So you're suddenly spending a quarter of your money. If you want to like provide your membership and people a way to effectively be involved, you're spending all of this money on compliance if you want to work in this small city in California instead of having your focus and your resources focused on serving the people that just want to be engaged in some way. And so we flipped it. We have a donor advisor, which is a firm. We also support C3 and C4 funds at Amalgamated Foundation. And we are completely focused on how people want to be engaged And as a donor advisor, because we charge a fee for the donations that come through us, and because we're not not focused on will we win this campaign or not, we're focused on do people care about climate or choice or democracy or other issues? And if they do, how do they want to give that's most effective? And is it to candidates or groups or a combination or a slate? We're really focused on how do we steer people to being effective around the things they care about, whether it's a cause or their community. And because we can be focused on that instead of all the logistics of how we contort ourselves as a C3 or a C4 or a super PAC or a local PAC, we can just be very focused on what people want and what the people we serve want to make the biggest impact. So let's say I want to take advantage of that donor advisor, Mm -hmm. how do I reach out? What's an engagement look like? How do you help steer me and my small donor dollars to what makes sense? So we've experimented, we've done quite a bit of interviews with different people and focus groups and said, what would you want? Would you want a clean slate? You know, would you want to be able to go to the website and have a really complicated thing where you can look up everything and create your own slate? And sure, like the the political junkies would love that, but your average person who just wants to give something effectively is actually saying, hey, can you do the research for me and tell me what to do and give me options because I might care more about one issue or one area, but can you keep it simple? And so right now, if you go to our site at champion.us, you'll see our slates that we had up for the last cycle that are like the local elected officials, the county clerks or the auditors. If you care about the people that can hopefully count these ballots with integrity or not, or if you want election deniers in those roles, which unfortunately far too many were elected to, then here are the people where your dollar really makes an impact, right? So we focus a lot on local races because if I'm a small donor who's giving 500 or I think our average gift is about $120, we want them to have an outsized impact instead of just going to Raphael Warnock or a lost cause <laughs> like Tracy McGrath. So if I'm interested in that area and I put $120 in, does it get divided up into mm-hmm. the various people in that slate, the yeah. organizations in that slate? Yeah. And you can prioritize it yourself. You can say, I'd rather give most of it to this person or that, or you can just evenly divide it. This is a business. That, that... It is. So we have, a, we have an LLC. We have a C3 fund that we manage and a C4 fund that we manage. The LLC does the donor advisor work. The C3 and the C4 funds do research, candidate research, public education. Most of our work is actually research and public education that we do on behalf of those funds. But we also have an LLC where we house the staff and pay the workers' comp for everybody working in different entities. And also it has the advantage of being able to provide donor advice in a commercial way so that it's it's a streamlined operation. And a piece of the... that let's say I gave goes to fund that. Is that? That's right. Yep. How big a piece? 2%. 2%. So it's kind of, that's less than Act Blue takes. Yeah. Yep. Is that on top of processing fees that you might have to pay? 
That is. Yeah. yeah. So, and no matter where you give or no matter where you, you know, if you buy something on Amazon, they're covering processing fees and that's lumped into the cost, right? Everybody pays processing fees. But what we do is for the donor advice and strategic advice and research we do, we charge that 2% as well. On the research side, what's the process for making the decisions about who to highlight? That matters a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. How, how do you go about that? What is it you? Is it you plus a number of individuals? What are their qualifications? What are their assumptions? Mm-hmm. So we have, because we just launched, we partnered with a whole set of groups to launch. I mean, we just started July 1 and just got the site up about five weeks before November 8. And so we relied really heavily on partnerships while we tested what was the experience that different people that care about these issues would want. And so We partnered with great organizations like Open Democracy, Down Ballot Climate Project, Lead Locally, Climate Cabinet. So there's a range of groups that we partnered with who've done really good research, really good surveys. And what we'd like to do is continue to partner with a lot of groups and highlight their work and move money to them because we'd like to have slates of the nonprofits doing great work and the candidates running so that the groups doing all the work are also getting resources. We like the groups that we partner with that win 60% of the time because they have really good data on what the close races are. So, for example, a lot of our down-ballot democracy races we highlighted, we were looking through them, and the ones we lost, the ones where they lost and that our donors supported, they lost by like 100 votes. So it was definitely worth putting money into that. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And we found some other groups had a 90% victory rate, and... We're going to look at their data a lot more closely in the future because we probably don't need to fund that. What do you feel is like the competition for what you're doing? I'm not sure there is much competition. If you look at Act Blue or others, they don't want to design slates and do the research and recommend anything, right? They are a neutral payment processor. And so I don't think they are competition. I think there are a lot of organizations out there that their purpose is to get Democrats elected or get Republicans elected. And our purpose is to serve people to help them be effective on what they care about, right? And so we have multiple issues. We have local, national, other options. And our goal isn't, hey, let's have the Democrats take over this House or this Senate or this state. Our goal is let's give the people that care about progressive issues in general, let's give them a way to be effective on the issues they care about. And so I don't think there is anyone out there that is as broadly focused as we are. There are some focused on one issue or another issue. And then there are a lot of others that are only about getting Democrats elected. And we're really much more about what is the person who is going to have a long-term relationship with us, who's going to subscribe, but also continuously give to different candidates and causes they care about. What do they need? What do they want? And how do we build that relationship? Is there any thought to having a part of it which invests in entrepreneurs who are building something that might have impact. Is that something that you do or consider? We haven't thought about that yet. I think we would fund anyone who's effective. I think there's some money out there for that kind of work, whether it's Schmidt Futures or whether it's others where they're looking for entrepreneurs in the space. We're working right now, though, on how we help to solve a lot of the boom bust funding cycles for groups that are doing great work. So, for example, we've worked on the technology to be able to have money go to to candidates monthly, and then once the election happens, flip to the group that's on the ground that is doing great work to follow up on issues. Um, so there, uh, there's a range of things like that that we're working on to try to solve some of the larger sectoral problems. But we haven't thought yet about funding entrepreneurs. There's another thing out there called Blue Tent. Are you aware of that? Yes. They seem like they have some overlap. Distinguish what you're doing from what they're doing. I like Blue Tent a lot. I think it's good. So we are a donor advisor. They're a media firm. That's not a giant distinction, but it's interesting in that if we want to talk about how progressives might be doing things incorrectly, a media firm is a way that you have the right to say anything you want, right? And so media firms are not independent expenditures ever. All those rules that apply to everybody else that make people jump through hoops and watch every word they say or have to report and file in every state and many cities, media firms don't have that if they're legitimate media firms. And 
Blue Tent is run by an experienced media executive. They seem great. And then we're more of a donor advisor where we don't have money flow through us and we don't raise money to influence elections. And so we still have to be very careful about anything we say to recruit clients, but we would never need, for example, to register as a PAC. From a perspective of business model innovation in helping people find effective ways to give and live their values and contribute to causes and candidates they care about. I think those are the two interesting business models. And I think C3s and C4s and PACs and IEs are the least interesting business models. (laughs) So David is doing some really incredible work there. To me, a lot of it seems a little bit inside baseball. I feel like the content is really focused on if you're already a savvy political donor, right? If you're in the Democracy Alliance or if you're a person that's really following things. And so it's, it's good content. I feel like the audience is for large donors. We're going out to people where they're at and we're saying, what do you care about? Do you care about choice? Do you care about climate? Do you care about democracy? Do you care about your community and these issues? Here's a strategic way you can be engaged. There are a lot of professional progressive donor advisors that work for wealthy people or groups of wealthy people to help steer their money and to do this kind of investigation. Do you have relationships with those folks? And do you have any opinion about how that world is working versus the model that you have? Yeah, I do have relationships with quite a few of them. I mean, I think generally it's a sophisticated group of people. It's generally a good group of people. In general, many of them don't have their own data. And so we're working on having our own data. So they very heavily rely on groups to tell them what the strategy should be, where are the close fights, what's on the line, what's winnable, what's not. And so over the next year, we're working to build up our own data so that we can share that with them and also with our own clients. They are very dependent on the groups that they grow to rely on for information and for strategy, which I think is good in a way because the groups are the practitioners and have great strategists. But in terms of being able to know for sure that how they're steering people, I think very often they're depending on other people and can't just open up their computer and look at their own data and interpret it in their own way. So I think that's one challenge in the space. But I think in general, you know, very thoughtful people, very smart, very committed. I haven't found anyone that I haven't been impressed by. Have you run into Donor Organizer Hub? Yes. What do you think about that idea? I think it's good. It's like a C3 that trains people on how to organize donors peer-to-peer or with other methods without saying what people should give to or anything, but just, hey, here are some ways to to organize donors, especially smaller donors. It's like a capacity-building shop that helps a lot of people. Haley, who runs it, is very generous, very incredible, very kind, very thoughtful, and knows what she's doing. It's a great piece of infrastructure to help groups organize donors. Is there potential for her to point people to to you as a target for their dollars or the other donors that they're organizing? Yeah, I think depending on depending on the type of organization they are, right? Like you don't necessarily want to see three saying, hey, here's a place where you can learn about political or charitable giving. But to the extent that they can legally, I think they certainly can. And we definitely share notes on techniques for for fundraising and organizing donors quite a bit because that's really their wheelhouse. What do you want to turn this into in the long run? What would you like to see it become? I think it would be great to be the place where people trust to go to find sound strategic advice on where they can give their time, treasure, and talent to make the biggest impact on the issues they care about. And We want to guide people to realize that it really matters who's in office, but also who's on the ground in the community following up and setting the agenda, and that a more balanced strategic approach focused on really high leverage campaigns and locations is crucial and that people can make a huge impact with just a little bit of strategic guidance. Some small number of people will come to me for advice about where to donate before an election, between elections. And I I always found it very challenging. I've typically steered them to smaller campaigns rather than big ones like you've mentioned or 
organizations that I have the feeling are good, but it's like you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of people who claim that their organization made the difference. And maybe in a close campaign that's won by a hundred votes, everybody who participated is part of that, right? But in the long run, how solving that question of impact, it's never going to be a total science, right? It's right. And like there are some kinds of investments that might be what's crucial for the election coming up in 20 days. And there's other things that are like, how are we going to get back power in rural areas that might take 25 years to turn a big ship around, right? Mm -hmm. How do you think about that big question of where do you get the biggest bang for your buck? Seems like a hard one. It is a hard one. And I think part of it is that we need to just share what the trade-offs are and be explicit on what the goals are of different portfolios or slates. Of course, you and I, as more entrepreneurial people, are more comfortable with risk and more comfortable with going big and taking the time and methodically getting to a bigger outcome rather than just low-hanging fruit. And I think different people want to approach social change in different ways. And so I think what we need to do is just say, you know, transparently, here's the low-hanging fruit. So for example, a lot of our donors right now are really interested in a runoff on December 10th in Louisiana, where there is a five-person board that is in charge of their telecommunications and their utilities and their natural gas pipelines. Um, there's a guy who's been in office for 18 years. He has overseen the state's big utilities in such a way that they're only at 4% clean electricity when South Dakota just was at 120% clean electricity production last week. Wow. They have so much clean electricity. So they're at four. They oversee the telecom industry and have allowed them to charge 15 or more times the phone rates for inmates to call loved ones or call their lawyers. Or, I mean, just it's just like doing the bidding of the industries they're supposed to regulate. And there's a guy running who has a good track record, committed to the environment, committed to social justice, wants to see a consumer bill of rights rather than some of the highest electric bills in the country. And so we have a lot of supporters that are really interested in that. And we're just really transparent that it's a long shot. It's a long shot. It's, he might win. Um, but if he wins, then that whole commission leans towards clean energy, leans towards not exploiting prisoners. You know, it's, it's a big one, but it's a long shot. It's like, you know, you're rolling the dice a little bit, but the impact you could have on an entire state and 40,000 prisoners' lives and all these elements there is huge. And so I think part of it is we just have to be really transparent. This is higher risk, higher reward. This is more of a sure shot. And just tell people that's what we think. And that also our theory of change is that if you have good policy, if you have good leadership, if you have really good groups on the ground that have a base and have influence, then that combination of things is what drives change. It seems like building something like this, that notion of transparency, that notion of showing people what the effect of their dollars were, you know, here's the bets you took during mm -hmm. the year. Here's what the groups that you bet on did. Mm -hmm. Here's what didn't work. Here's what did work might be an important part of, getting people to re-up, getting people to sell their friends on it. How do you do that well? What's the plan for kind of reporting back to the donors? So we're working on that right now. And it's interesting because it holds us accountable. And so some of the partnerships we form for candidate selection, they won so many races that <laughs> we're going to write them and say, hey, we think actually they won too many they should have picked closer races and in the future, we'll make sure we do that. They might not have in a different election with the same criteria, right? Yeah. And, you know, everybody thought there might be a bloodbath. And so maybe you pick safer bats or um, so there are a lot of factors there, but um, we're happier with the 61% rate of local candidates that are county clerks and county commissioners that are crucial for a thriving democracy. We're unhappy that 39% of election deniers are in, but we're happy that the races were so close and it was good guidance to the people that we serve that care about democracy to invest there. I can see it being pretty exciting if you got to the point where 
a lot of people are using this where you're helping to steer a substantial sum in good directions. Where do you think you lose interest if your habit is build it and then let someone else run it? Like how close are you to that? Is that way off? That's that's five to eight years off. Yeah. Yeah. Usually I get a five-year itch, somewhere between five and seven years. What should I have asked you that I haven't? Good question. Where we're seeing the most interest right now from people is that the people that use our services are giving to obscure local races and not the big national races. We created a slate of runoff candidates. And at first it was Senator Warnock and Devante Lewis, Devante being the person running for the Louisiana Public Service Commission. And a set of people said, oh, wow, I want to use this slate. So like Mark Ruffalo started posting it and Bill McKibben saw it and started posting it. So people started both giving and then sharing it with their audiences to say, hey, this slate's on champion. You should champion these candidates and these causes. And most people that are getting the slate with Warnock and Devante Lewis on it are zeroing out the amount to Warnock and giving it all to Devante Lewis. Wow. So it's really interesting and it's not prompted. And, you know, we say, hey, split it evenly or give to whoever you'd like. And it's amazing just to watch it come in and almost all of the donations, probably 80% are just to Devante Lewis. And I think people get that there's just so much noise around these big races. There, there's so much money spent on them. I mean, I think Warnock was the most expensive non-presidential campaign last cycle. You know, it's there's just so much money that people want to actually feel like they can make a difference. And it's without any prompting or pushing, people are just choosing to give to a local candidate. To build this, I assume you had to seek funding. Do you have the ability to ask people to fund you? You know, like ActBlue does tips, right? Um, how are you funding what you're doing? We have tips as well. So we ask people to give tips. I'd say about 70% of people leave a tip, which is very generous. Plus, we charge the fee of 2% just for the advice. We also have a set of contracts. We'll do consulting for different organizations or foundations on strategy. And so that's one of the ways that we also generate revenue. That's basically our, our business model is build up the research, build up the strategic work, offer it to small donors, but also offer it to foundations, to different funds, to different organizations. If someone wants to be a partner to you, to in, in other words, to get their slate, like you mentioned, like Climate Cabinet, a few other, mm -hmm. supposing I wanted to go through some calculations and put up a slate of, I don't know, the most important state legislative races or the the best organizers of rural people in the West or something. Can people reach out to you? How, how does that work? Sure. In yeah, they can write at write me at phil at champion.us. One of the things we have to be very focused on is figuring out how we're develop, using our very limited time and resources to develop a product that really works for the person donating through the site. We are very open to talking to a whole range of groups about slates that they'd want to build or how to get their slates on our site. But I think the key for us is how are we offering something to the person who's giving $120, something that's really compelling to them that gets them to click and then to sign up for more information from us. And so we are always open to partnering and we partner a lot because there's so many groups doing great work and we don't need to redo what they're doing. But at the same time, our focus really needs to be on the person giving $120 and what's compelling to them. I feel like I've heard a lot of people with a variety of ideas around the same problem. Uh, I don't know if you saw Give Blue, people with giving circles. I've been hearing kind of a swirl around this idea, which is a good sign for you, mm -hmm. I think, when, when that's in the air. What do you think is the root of that? Do you think that there's a sense that giving is badly allocated right now and needs to be reformed or what's driving that, that impulse right now? I think there's a small amount of giving needed, needing reform. I think um, some of the people doing that work might think we need to democratize philanthropy more, but I think the bigger thing is since 2016, I mean, Trump just 
changed politics and political engagement. You see it in the the amount of people that vote every cycle. You see it in the amount of people that want to do something. And I think more and more people just want to do what they can, right? Whether they're terrified about their rights being taken, whether they're terrified of police violence, whether they're terrified So more of the scary political conditions is driving how do we serve that group of people than a diagnosis about the current state of affairs within the industry, within political fundraising or... I think at least from a, for, from a perspective of demand and interest from the small donors or the people that will join a giving circle or, you know, I just think the stakes are so clear for everybody, no matter where you are in terms of your political party, you know, everybody thinks the stakes are dire and more people are voting, more people are getting involved, more people are giving. When Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, 5.5% of Democratic giving happened within three days and the, for the 12-month period leading up to that. People are just terrified about their rights, their right to choose, to bodily autonomy, to having a democracy, to what the future looks like because of climate. And people want to do something, helping them find an effective way to use their limited resources to make an impact is really crucial. Well, I'm glad you're in the middle of that. It sounds like it has the potential to make a difference and we certainly need that kind of thing. Is there anything else you want to say? No, I love your podcast and I really appreciate you having me on. I'm honored and glad you did. That was Phil Radford. He is at champion.us. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.